Hello and welcome to episode number 122 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, March 28th, 2011. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Walt Davis. Walt is a rancher and holistic management practitioner based in Oklahoma. Walt Davis, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Well, let's start uh, by talking a little bit about your ranch. Tell us about your ranch. Where is it located, and what do you produce? Uh, Frank, I grew up in West Texas on a typical range, small range outfit there that my my people came to Texas before it was Texas, uh, that's, and ranching is what we've done as long as I know. Uh, I grew up in West Texas. In 1960, I moved to Oklahoma looking for grass and water and took over management of a family ranch on Red River and promptly started to get an education. I uh, went to A&M to get a degree. Let's see, I went to school and Went to college first time in 1956, I guess. Found out that uh, next four years, five years, that everything that my people had been doing for 200 years was basically wrong. And so when I moved to Oklahoma, I took all the new knowledge with me and proceeded to drag Davis Ranch into the modern world. And in about 10 short years, I took a profitable ranch to the brink of bankruptcy. I uh, adapted all of the new technology, uh, the best management practice philosophy. They didn't call it that at that time, but the best fertility program, the best animal health program, the best nutrition program. If A&M or OSU said do it, we did it in spades. And we uh, we had some success. We, we produced a lot of beef, a lot of pecans. Uh, for a while there, we were cropping. We produced a lot of crops. The only thing we didn't produce was profit. As the years went by, our operating loan got higher, our soil health decreased, and my stress level went up considerably. Finally, in 1974, the cattle market made one of its periodic corrections, went, went south, and I woke up with the realization that if I was going to stay in the ranching business, I had to change the way I was operating. It wasn't a case of me deciding to uh, become an organic practitioner or anything else. It was a it was a case of if I was going to be in business as a rancher, things had to change. So I started out basically throwing things away. Prime criteria was if it cost money, I can't afford it. I'm not going to do it. And this led to me getting away from such things as nitrogen fertilization, wheat spray. Um, it led to me trying to figure out how to reduce the need for the supplemental feeding that I was doing. And this began an education process that's still going on today. Uh, my goodness, how many years is that? A long time. But 
it's been a it's been a fantastic journey. Make a long story short, as far as Davis Ranch in, in Oklahoma, I took a ranch that was basically bankrupt uh, from my own mismanagement and started trying to make first financial corrections and later ecological corrections. And when I sold the ranch, we had been profitable for 20 years in a row. Uh, we developed a program, a ranching program based on natural processes and coming back now to the ecological processes, water cycle, mineral cycle, energy flow, and biological succession. It's amazing what can be done once you realize that we do not have to interfere with nature. All we have to do is work with nature. I took country that uh, we were using an average of 200 pounds of nitrogen a year on. And when I did away with the nitrogen, I fully expected to have my production drop off the map. And it did about drop some. But at the end of about five years, my production per acre was actually higher than it was when I was using the high inputs. I had, there is not any one thing here that we did. It was a whole package of things based on the realization that anything that affects any part of a functioning system, affects the whole system. Anything that degrades the soil is going to degrade profitability in the longer run. Anything that degrades the soil is going to degrade animal health and animal productivity in the long run. The concept of holism, I had read Smuts before I met Alan Savory. Uh, but I hadn't really absorbed it. When I met Alan Savory the first time, I thought he must be a very smart man because he was talking about doing some of the same things that I was trying to do, but had never been able to uh, spell out anywhere near as elegantly as Alan did. So holistic management became a very strong part of my my being starting in... 1985, I think, maybe 86. And it's been fun. It's been fun from then on. Um, like I say, I'm no longer actively ranching. I've got, I live on a little place, but in where I grew up in West Texas, they'd call it a horse trap, not a ranch. And for the first time in many, many years, I, I own no animals. I'm still doing some consulting. I'm trying to write. Um, and I'm finding the old truism, if you want to learn a subject, try to teach it or try to write about it. But anyway, that's kind of where I am today, Frank. Okay, well, that's all great stuff. Now, I want to I wanna kind of backtrack a little bit here and talk about that time that you were speaking about when you realized you had to make some changes, things weren't working for you economically. Now, this may be a little bit counterintuitive to some people, 
a lot of people think that the reason to go organic is because it's better on the environment and uh, consumers like it more because it's cleaner food. But what you're saying is you were running a high input, high technology kind of system um, that had some pretty big investments involved in it. And at the end of the day, you weren't making enough money to cover your expenses. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that relationship between some of those high yields that you had, but the poor economic performance that you had under that system and um, how you came to that realization and, and what you saw on your farm as a consequence of some of that. Okay, well, let's take, uh, let, let's take animal production. I'm trained as a geneticist. That was my graduate work was in, in um, genetics, animal breeding. And one of the first things I did when I got to Oklahoma was to institute a, a program of uh, selection based on animal performance. We selected the heavy weaning heifers to go back into the cow herd, and we used uh, bulls that threw heavy weaning calves, and I got heavy weaning weights. Uh, one time I was, we also got good performance out of the cattle, I wanted to. One time I had two sets of cows on that place. One set one year weaned a 98% calf crop of big heavy calves. I don't remember the weights, but in, in excess of 500 pounds. And the other group was close. I think it was 95 or 96%. Similar performance, but we weren't making any money. The simple fact was I got my cows so big and I was using so much input into them that I was putting more money at risk every year than the potential for profit justified. Anytime that you have to come out of pocket with cash in an agricultural situation, almost any situation I can think of, but in agriculture it's particularly true because we have control of such a small portion of the factors that affect us. We can't control the markets. We can't control the, the uh, weather. We can't control, control the political situation. The one thing that we can control is what we spend. To make a long story short, when we became profitable again, I had downsized my cows considerably, and I had lowered my weaning weights by over 100 pounds. Uh, yeah, that'd be about right, about 100, 120 pounds that we lowered our weaning weights from our high point to the point where we again became profitable. I got caught up in the same thing that is still driving much of animal agriculture today, be it dairymen or, or cow-calf, in that bigger is better, uh, heavier milk, bigger weaning weights, and I'm sorry, that is not what the purpose of a beef cow. The purpose of a beef cow is to take something of low value, forage in a pasture situation, and convert it to something of high value, beef or milk or wool or whatever the, the product is. The animals are simply a tool. They are not the end product. I got caught up in the same thing that most people do, that 
I wanted the biggest, fattest cattle in the county. Uh, and that's not hard to do. All it takes is time and money. What is hard is to do that and stay in business, stay profitable. And, well, I'll, I'll get a little radical. Modern agriculture is probably 60 years old, maybe not even 50 years old. I know I saw the first nitrogen fertilizer that I remember in 1950 or 1951. And nitrogen fertilizer is the bedrock of modern agriculture. Doesn't matter whether you're talking about beef production or corn production or whatever it is. On modern agriculture, it all goes back to nitrogen fertilizer. During that time of modern agriculture, we have degraded our soils here in the United States in particular. Uh, because we've used more than a lot of people have in other areas. We have degraded our food chain for our people, and we have degraded the financial and mental health of our producers. I realized in, oh gosh, I'm not sure when it was now, probably when I really woke up to the fact it was been in the early to mid-70s, that I was ruining my health, uh, not only because of the materials that I was handling, and we were handling some atrocious pesticides, um, stuff that nobody should be around. I was bringing it in on my clothes to my wife and little kids. But also, aside from that, the stress factor was so high that I wound up with ulcers and all kinds of other problems. And then the financial aspect was getting worse instead of better. The better job I did of conforming to what the prevailing wisdom said was good management, the worse shape I got in financially. I didn't get back into good shape financially until I realized but it's all out there. All you have to do is tailor your management to your environment and substitute management for money. And that's what we started trying to do. That meant better grazing management. This was a linchpin. Uh, we'd been rotating cattle through four or five paddocks for years. Uh, thought we were doing good. Looking back on it now, we were actually hurting ourselves in these low cereal Bermuda grass pastures. If you've only got four or five paddocks rotating through, you can never graze that forage when it's ready to be grazed. You are always behind or in front of the forage with five or six paddocks, four or five paddocks. We began to subdivide, began to intensify our grazing management, and things began to fall out not only financially, but ecologically. For instance, for many years, I sprayed faithfully for hornflies every 28 to 30 days, starting sometime in late April usually and going through until we had a killing frost. There's no telling how much beef I stressed off of those animals during that time. Uh, I carried a bottle of epinephrine in my saddle pockets because periodically I'd knock an animal down with whatever the herbicide was that I was using that year. 
I was stressing those animals tremendously. When we got our stock density up, when we got our subdivisions to where we could have 25 to 30 paddocks per herd and began to move regularly, the hornfly problem more or less disappeared. I still had hornflies in May when the first flush came out. But as the season went on, we were moving away from the manure. At that time of the year, I'd be on daily moves. I'd be grazing one day and moving. So we're leaving the manure behind where the flies hatch. We're leaving the flies behind. We begin to see other things. Uh, horse flies disappeared. I couldn't understand that until I got to watching we had a sand wasp reappear after being gone from, after they killed him with spraying. But the, when this sand wasp reappeared, they appeared and parasitized the horse flies to lay their eggs in. And when we began to see these sand wasps, I've asked two different entomologists and got two different names, so I'm not going to try to tell you what he is. But he's a big black and yellow wasp that preys on horse flies and face flies deer flies, lays his egg in them and buries them for his legs to hatch out. When they appeared in numbers, the horsefly season was over. Uh, eel flies. For years, I back poured my cattle every fall to kill the ox warbles in their bodies because uh, we knew that the eel flies lay the eggs on the cattle's heels in March. They enter the body. And if we don't kill them, then next spring they're going to hatch out in the back, cut a hole in the hide, and fall out. So we pour it back pour with organic phosphates to kill them. And we did. But I quit all that in 1974 and 75. And we began to have a few heel flies again. But somewhere into the late 70s, early 80s, I realized I no longer had heel flies. And I couldn't figure out why, what, what happened to the heel flies. I haven't done anything. It's not like the, the stomach worms. I've moved off and left them behind and going to clean faster. It's not like the, the horn flies. I finally, one morning, I was uh, going out just, just about daylight, going east, stopped to open a gate. It was early in the year. Grass was up oh, just maybe two inches tall. And as I looked out across the pasture and opened the gate, I thought, how beautiful that dew shining in the morning sunshine. Looked like a field of diamonds there. Looking closer, there's not that much grass. So I walked out in it and started looking. This sparse spring grass just coming up, maybe there was a, maybe there was a peg of grass on every two square inches, something like that. Pretty sparse. But the tip of every grass plant was connected to the other grass plants by spider web. Tiny, tiny little spiders just hatching out and spinning their webs. And it hit me. Those heel flies fall out as an ox warble, pupate in the soil, and then the adult fly comes out about that time of year. A lot of those flies never made it out. As they hatched out, this profusion of spiders and spider webs took most of them out. So this is the kind of thing that we, we, we began to see, and then we began to look for it. 
uh, calf scours. When I was ranching conventionally in that country, incidentally, that's a high stocking, that's a high carrying capacity country. I, I was stocking at a rate of about an animal unit to two acres with uh, with the high nitrogen fertilization. I actually got it a little better when I got off the nitrogen fertilization, but that's another story. Point is, heavy parasite concentration, heavy disease concentration because the concentration of the animals. When I was ranching what I'd call conventionally, I bought scour boluses by the the gross, and we used them. And some seasons I'd buy two or three grosses. When I got away from a lot of things that I was doing and got on some what I considered good grazing management, calf scours became almost a thing of the past. Very rarely did I ever have calf scours. And when I did, I could point out why. For instance, in one on the north end of the ranch, I had uh, 28 paddocks that I was working a set of cows through. And several times when I would come through a particular paddock, in two or three days, I would have calf scars. And I started looking and started thinking. It finally dawned on me that they're only showing up at this time period. Got to looking. Three paddocks back, we came through a paddock that had an old mud hole tank in it. Shallow, cattle walk out in it, defecate in it, urinate in it, get their udders muddy in the water. A few days later, I've got calf scars. I fenced off the mud hole tank, and that was the end of the calf scars. This, this is the kind of thing, Frank, that I'm that I'm talking about. I didn't set out to become an organic producer. I quit doing things that I didn't think made financial sense or ecological sense. For instance, the back pour, the spraying, the, uh, for years I wormed my cow herd twice a year. I haven't wormed a cow now in 30 something years. And my cattle are healthier than they were when I was doing all of this. We tend to take technology as a given, and it's not. Animals are supposed to have a certain amount of parasitism. They're supposed to have a certain amount of pest. If we have good wormers, uh, I don't know of a really good wormer right now. Most of them have at least partial resistance built up to them. But if you have a really good wormer and you worm a cow or a sheep or a goat or whatever and you clean them out, the first thing that happens is that animal quits producing antibodies against that parasite. That means that the next time they are exposed, and there will be a next time, they have no antibody production protection. So instead of maybe one out of a thousand parasites embedding in the gut wall, that may be a hundred of them that embed in the gut wall. And you go from boom to bust, just like a roller coaster. Clean animals, heavily parasitized animal, and back and forth. If we can manage so that those animals carry a certain percentage, a small percentage of parasites all the time, they never stop producing antibodies, and the animal's own immune system 
can be protection, provided that we do the things that don't let the parasites overwhelm the immune system with sheer numbers. And a lot of what we have done in the past uh, is, you'd almost think it's designed to promote parasitism or disease problems. And what I'm talking about there is um, areas that are in continuous use over a long period of time by a lot of animals. Water, water points that maybe the cattle are grazing 500 acres, but they're all coming to water at one point. So that water point and the areas around it becomes a source point for parasites and disease. Animals can't fight concentrations like that. However, if we can spread the animals, keep them on clean ground for at least a majority of the time, then their own biological processes can take over and do an awful lot of what we were trying to end to do chemically. Does that make any sense at all? Makes perfect sense, and it's, uh, it's great to have you give us all these concrete examples from your many years of experience in the field. I mean, um, it's really uh, an important source of information. I want to ask you, uh, obviously you rely heavily on your ability to observe what's going on in the ecosystem and with your animals. And um, it seems like this is how you gauge animal performance, too, with a well-trained eye um, to a number of the observable elements of the animal. Can you talk us through some of the ways that you judge the health and performance of your animals? Okay. Uh, animals have normal behavior. Let me, let me tell you a story first. When I was a kid, got old enough to think I would work, and I was 13, maybe, I don't know. And Dad had an old fellow working for him. He was my boss. And he worked, Monroe worked hard to try to get me to make a hand and to learn to look at cattle. I remember one time we had uh, separated some cows and calves, and we were going to take part of the cattle one way and part of the cattle another way. And Monroe told me to go to the pen where the calves were and get the calf that belongs to a certain cow here. We hadn't been tagging these calves. None of them had earmarks. None of them, they were all Hereford calves born in about a month. And if you know one Hereford calf looks an awful lot like the next Hereford calf. And I stood there looking at that pen of cattle, calves. And finally I walked back to Monroe. How in the hell am I supposed to know which calf belongs to that cow? He says, open your eyes and look. Look at the cow. Now look at the calf. It's that calf right there. He looks just like her. Well, he didn't look just like her to me at that time. But he looked exactly like her to Monroe because Monroe was used to actually seeing the cattle and not just looking at them. Now, I don't claim that everybody can learn to pick an Angus calf out of a bunch that belongs to this Angus cow over here. But you can learn to look at an animal and tell an awful lot about their general health. Is the hair shiny? Is their eye bright? What's their general demeanor? Are the animals poor or fat for the season? Animals that are healthy 
exude health. They they look healthy. They feel good. Animals that are not healthy do not feel good. They are agitated. They are logetic. They are um, hangdog. So there's an awful lot of things that we don't necessarily have to have a thermometer or a set of scales to know what animals are doing good or not. My wife says I have a scatatorial fixation because I spend all my time in the pasture kicking manure. But if I can't see anything else about a set of cattle, if I can see the manure, I can tell you whether the animals are gaining or not gaining simply by the state of the manure because that that is a reflection of what the animals, of what the amount and the content that those animals ate 24 to 36 hours before. If manure is stacked up like uh, softballs, I can guarantee you that the fiber content is so high that those animals are not gaining very well. If, by the same token, it's spread out in a sheet on the ground, I can tell you that the energy is too low in the forage those animals are grazing. The fiber is too low. Those animals are not in a healthy nutritional or metabolic state. So these are just some of the things, but here again, there is no hard and fast set of rules. Biblical reference, the eye of the master fattens the ox. That's real true. A lot of us have turned into windshield ranchers. We drive through the pasture and we look out across the pasture. If we can see grass, we got grass. If we can see cattle standing up, we got cattle but we don't look at, we don't see what is happening on that operation. If you want to know what your grass is like, I can't do it from a pickup. I can do it horseback, I can do it walking, but I've got to spend a lot of time looking straight down. I've got to see, is the ground covered? What is the, what is the condition of the forage plants that are there? How many of them are overgrazed? How many of them are underutilized? I've got to see the individual elements that make up that pasture. It, it comes back to observation. You, you put your finger on it. It comes back to being able to actually see what you're looking at. And I think that takes a certain amount of experience, but also it's, it's very easily to learn. Uh, my consulting work, the people that pick up fastest on that are women, uh, gals that have no agricultural background whatsoever. But you go on a pasture walk with them, and right quick, uh, they they get it. They understand what we're looking for. They're used to dealing in detail. I don't know. I don't know what the story is. But they, uh, I think a part of it is that they're not afraid to say, I don't know, show me. And a lot of those old boys will... Uh, well, they'd be burnt with hot irons before they'd admit they didn't understand it. Observation plays a big part. It really does. Well, um, on the flip side of that, you and I have been recently discussing a software package that you and a colleague developed several years ago. Now, um, software is obviously a technological tool, uh, and it's not necessarily something that relies strictly on observation yet you felt that there was uh, a need for this type of software. 
So can you tell us a little bit about why you saw this need and what the software is and what it's designed to do? Okay, I'll be happy to. Uh, it started out, I was doing some consulting work, and this is back, uh, gosh, 15 years ago now, I guess. I was doing a lot of consulting work and a lot of mapping. And I told an old college roommate of mine who was a software developer that I needed a little mapping program, a little simple mapping program that I could use to develop uh, maps for my for my clients that we could change areas and, you know, play what-ifs if we move this fence. Be very useful. Well, I don't know whether you know software developers or not, but they suffer from a disease called if it can be done, it must be done. And this program kind of like Topsy, it kind of grew. And we got into it big time. Uh, Royce, the programmer, friend, my friend, had been doing a lot of work with simulation. And part of what we were doing was simulating grass growth by factoring in such things as species, uh, growth zone, soil type, soil depth, uh, climate. And he came up with a way that we could, we could get some pretty good predictions if people entered the information needed about this particular block of ground, then we could get pretty good predictions of how much forage should be growing at that, in that paddock at any point in time. Well, from there, it was a real small step to say, all right, if we have this many animals of this body weight, then we could develop the demand side of that picture, put the two together. This is what should be growing out there. This is what our demand is, and he even took it to the point to where you could grow these cattle. If you had a set of yearlings, we put a 500-pound calves in here, then he'd factor in a program and say, where well, these cattle are going to be growing at small, at uh, a low, moderate, or rapid rate, and could grow the cattle tree as we went through the program. It, it grew into a pretty sophisticated program. And he, of course, wanted to go on and put all the bells and whistles on it. Um, cattle inventory program, uh, a management tool where you could have contact management, you could have uh, uh, employee management. There's a lot of things that, that went into it. But the original point, starting with the mapping, developed into a way to control a grazing chart. People that have not worked with holistic management, worked with a grazing chart, are intimidated by it, and it can be intimidating. But what that chart does is it says, I expect for this many animals to be in this spot at this point in time throughout the entire year. These animals, we will chart their position in space and time. And this can be done, and it's an extremely useful tool. How good a tool it is depends upon how good your assessment of the program is. You lay out all of your various subdivisions, your paddocks, your pastures, your traps, whatever you call them, and you say this paddock has the potential to be the best in the place, or however you rate them. You've got to rate these paddocks. You've got to rate them according to how they stand 
in the ability to produce forage. What we did with the software program was take it to the next step. We said, given this soil type, this area of grass, these species, and we made provision in the program to say we have 10% uh, big blue stem, we've got 15% little blue stem, we've got 35% cytogramma, we've got 25% ragweed, whatever the species out there are, if you want to take it that far, you can spell out these species, then each species has a growth pattern. And using his simulation techniques, he put all of this together, so factoring all of this in, climate soils, species, down to bare ground, everything that we know about this program, this is how much forage should be in this paddock on the 15th day of June. Is it perfect? No, but neither is it crazy. It's pretty good. We've done enough uh, simulations on it that it's pretty good. Now, you ask me the value. Probably the best value for this software package other than just organization, having having a spot where you can come in at night and in 10 minutes enter every piece of information that's pertinent to the ranch on that day. But beyond that, probably its greatest value is that it forces you to look at your country. It forces you to make assessments between these various paddocks, it forces you to look at, all right, this paddock I know is not half as productive as the one next to them. Why not? What's the difference? Is it bare ground? Is it is it brush? Is it thin soil? What's, what's the difference in these paddocks? Once we understand the differences in the land areas, then we have a whole lot better chance of developing management strategies that will allow us to improve all of the area. So I think the I think the I think the software package has value. It has one danger. Um, I don't know whether you've read the the, uh, the manual on it or not yet, but one of the first things I say is that. This program is not designed to make decisions for you. If you allow it to make decisions for you, you will be just as wrong as the old by-the-calendar rotations that came out of the various colleges back in the in the 80s. Uh, the, the program can be extremely valuable as a tool. It gives you the opportunity. For instance, uh, we've got a grazing chart here, and we've got a grazing plan, and we've got a wildfire come through and burn burn six paddocks. If you're going to change that on a paper grazing plan, you're in for a long spell. You're going to have to copy and recopy and refigure. With the software package, you can do that quite simply, quite quickly. It has some real opportunities. I do think that, that there's an opportunity for uh, some of the best ballistic management practitioners to improve their use of the grazing chart. 
I think there's an opportunity to get some people that are not using a grazing chart started with it in the program. But I think the biggest, uh, potentially the most valuable part of the program, I think, is to get people to look at their country, understand what they've got, and organize the facts in such a way that they can make sense of it. And this works from the, the management standpoint of having all of your contracts, contacts in one spot, all of your employee information in one spot, your cattle inventories, your, your cattle flow sheets uh, in one place to where uh, it's easily usable. And then the grazing program is kind of the ice cream on top of the cake. Well, Walt Davis, I'd like to thank you for joining me today. I'd like to thank you for sharing with us all your great insights and experience. And I'd like to thank you for going out there and sharing your ideas and your experience and your knowledge with others as well. I'm Frank, I'm happy to do it. And I'm right now, I'm going to get back to the book that I'm writing that's going to solve all these problems for us. Probably in another 15, 20 years, I'll have it done. <laughs> well, as soon as your book is available, let me know, and I will uh, announce that to our listeners because I'm sure there will be some people right. who are interested in that as well. Frank, thank you. You enjoyed it. That concludes my interview with holistic management practitioner and rancher Walt Davis. I'd like to thank Walt once again for joining me on this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. For those listeners who have been waiting for the next podcast to come out, it has been a few weeks since I released the last episode, and uh, that's just because I've been quite busy and have not had uh, much time to do some of the production of the shows, which is really probably the production and the scheduling, actually what uh, can often delay getting a podcast out from one week to the next. So I would like to apologize to those folks who have been uh, waiting for the next episode and have not seen it over the past few weeks. And I would just ask you to be understanding in that um, I've got many other things going on and sometimes it's not always easy for me to allocate the time that I should to the podcast. That said, I do expect for there to be another episode of the podcast next Monday, so please stay tuned for that. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. <laughs>